For I've had enough of this world and its pleasures. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. I will arise and go forth to the house of my father. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. House of my young. Shalom, and welcome to today's teaching on the Hebraic roots of Christianity, where we study first century Christianity and the faith that Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means salvation, taught his disciples. And now, Hebraic roots teacher Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries International. Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and we welcome you to today's teaching on the subject, Exposing the Kingdom of Darkness. This is part 11 of the series. So let's summarize what we've covered in this section of our teaching. Number one, Adam Weishoff founded the secret society known as the Illuminati on May 1st, 1776 in Bavaria, Germany. Number two, Bohemian Grove is a private men's club located in California who are members of the global elite. Their symbol is the owl. Number three, Lilith is interpreted in the Bible as an owl who is a demon goddess. Number four, in 1785, the Bavarian Illuminati started a branch in the United States. Its lodge was called Columbia. Number five, with the birth of the United States, the goddess Columbia became the female personification and symbol of the United States. Number six, the movie studio Columbia Pictures adopted the goddess Columbia as its logo in 1924. Number seven, the formal legal name of the media company, CBS, was Columbia Broadcasting System. Its logo became the Illuminati symbol, the all-seeing eye. Number eight, the modern method of banking can be traced back to medieval and early Renaissance Italy. Number nine, the original banks were merchant banks. Persecuted Jews living in Christian European countries were attracted to the trade. Number 10. Court Jews were Jewish bankers or businessmen who lent money and handled the finances of some of the Christian European noble houses primarily in the 17th and 18th centuries. Number 11. In the late 17th century, the largest centers for commerce were located in the cities of Amsterdam, Holland, London, England, and Hamburg, Germany. Number 12. In the late 18th century, the Rothschild family of German Jewish origin created a banking empire that eventually had branches all over Europe. Number 13. Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who lived from 1744 to 1812, his name was originally Bauer, and he adopted the surname of Rothschild, taking that name from a sign with a red shield that hung over the door to his business establishment. Number 14. As a pioneer of international finance, Mayor Amschel Rothschild developed a finance house and spread his empire by installing each of his five sons as his agents in the five major financial centers of Europe. Number 15. These financial centers were located in Frankfurt, Germany, Vienna, Austria, London, England, Paris, France, and Naples, Italy. 
The five sons linked their branches and became the first banking entity to transcend national borders. Number 16. Mayor Amschel Rothschild was famously quoted as saying, Give me control of a nation's money supply, and I care not who writes the laws. The Rothschilds were also Freemasons. Number 17. Since the birth of the United States in 1776, the Rothschilds tried to set up a national private central bank that they owned and would control. Number 18. In order to achieve that goal, they manipulated events to create the War of 1812, the Civil War in the 1860s, and the Panic of 1907. From these efforts, Presidents Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln were assassinated. Number 19. After the Panic of 1907, Republican Senator Nelson Aldrich worked with Rothschild's supported bankers. In a 1910 meeting at Jekyll Island, they designed a plan which ultimately was incorporated into the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, which created a private national central bank in the United States. Number 20. With the passing of the 1913 Federal Reserve Act, Congress required that all nationally chartered banks become members of the Federal Reserve System. Number 21. Commercial banks in the United States practice fractional reserve banking. Since 1980, all depository institutions have been required to set aside reserves with the Federal Reserve. Number 22. Fractional reserve banking involves banks accepting deposits from customers and making loans to borrowers while holding in reserve an amount equal to only a fraction of the bank's deposit liabilities. The exact reserve requirement is determined by the Federal Reserve. Number 23. Fractional reserve banking makes possible for there to be unexpected bank runs from depositors. In this case, the Federal Reserve may become the lender of last resort. Number 24. By manipulating the money supply, the Federal Reserve can create financial bubbles. By decreasing the money supply, the Federal Reserve helped to create the severity of the Great Depression in the United States in the 1930s. So given that Satan is the king of Babylon, we are seeing how the Babylonian system has many layers and many tentacles. And next, we're going to look at, in greater detail, political Babylon. First, we're going to look at the Bilderberg Group. The Bilderberg Group consists of between 120 and 150 people representing the international elite from various business, media, academic, political, and government areas. The first meeting took place in Hotel de Bilderberg in the Netherlands, from May 29th to 31st, 1954. They primarily consist of members from the United States and Europe, and historically they have included David Rockefeller and Henry Kissinger. Only the group's steering committee decides whom to invite. In most cases, participants are adherents to one world order governance, run by the top power elites. The meetings are held under the Chatham House Rule, which states that participants are free to use the information received, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speaker or speakers nor of any other participant may be revealed. Furthermore, no press coverage is permitted. According to author and investigative journalist David Estulin, he writes, Regardless of its early mission, 
these people have created in time what amounts to a shadow world government, which has taken control over the national sovereignty of various countries in order to impose their own will. Continuing with his quote, Eventually, the membership plans to establish complete control over financial institutions of the world as they believe that this is the route to absolute control of the world's population. The group's grand design is for a one-world government with a single global marketplace policed by one world army and financially regulated by one world central bank using one global currency. So next we're going to share with you regarding the Council on Foreign Relations Organization. The Council on Foreign Relations was founded on July the 29th, 1921. It's headquartered in New York City with an additional office in Washington, D.C. Its founding members included David Rockefeller, Paul Warburg, who, as you remember, is regarded as the father of the Federal Reserve, Edward House, and Alan Dulles. The CFR publishes the bi-monthly journal Foreign Affairs and runs the David Rockefeller Studies Program. Next, I'm going to share with you a detailed quote from one of the founders of the Council on Foreign Relations, Colonel Edward House. So in a private meeting with U.S. President Woodrow Wilson, Colonel Edward House declared the goal and the intent of the international bankers who established the Federal Reserve, as well as those who are founding members of the Trilateral Commission. He stated, Very soon, every American will be required to register their biological property in a national system designed to keep track of the people and that will operate under the ancient system of pledging. By such methodology, we can compel people to submit to our agenda, which will affect our security as a chargeback for our fiat paper currency. Every American will be forced to register or suffer being able to work and earn a living. They will be our chattels or property, and we will hold the security interest over them forever. By operation of the law merchant under the scheme of secured transactions, Americans, by unknowingly or unwittingly delivering the bills of lading to us, will be rendered bankrupt and insolvent, secured by their pledges. They will be stripped of their rights and given a commercial value designed to make us a profit, and they will be none the wiser, for not one man in a million could ever figure out our plans. And if by accident one or two should figure it out, we have in our arsenal plausible deniability. After all, this is the only logical way to fund government, by floating liens and debts to the registrants in the form of benefits and privileges. This will inevitably reap us huge profits beyond our wildest expectation and leave every American a contributor to this fraud, which we will call social insurance. Without realizing it, every American will unknowingly be our servant, however begrudgingly. The people will become helpless and without any hope for their redemption, and we will employ the high office, meaning the presidency, of our dummy corporation, that is the United States, to foment this plot against America. In the late 1930s, the Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation began contributing large amounts of money to the Council on Foreign Relations. In 1938, they created various committees on foreign relations funded by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation. Beginning in 1939 and lasting for five years, the Council achieved much greater prominence within the government and the State Department when it established the strictly confidential war and peace studies funded entirely by the Rockefeller Foundation. 
At that time, the Council on Foreign Relations ultimately produced 682 memoranda for the State Department, marked classified and circulated among the appropriate governmental departments. A critical study found that of 502 government officials surveyed from 1945 to 1972, more than half were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. During the Eisenhower administration, 40% of the top U.S. foreign policy officials were CFR members. Under President Harry Truman, 42% of the top posts were filled by council members. During the Kennedy administration, this number rose to 51% and peaked at 57% under the Johnson administration. Today, there are about 5,000 members, which has included senior politicians, more than a dozen secretaries of state, bankers, CIA directors, lawyers, professors, and senior media figures. So next, I'd like to share with you another quote from Georgetown professor Dr. Carol Quigley from his book, Tragedy and Hope. The Council on Foreign Relations, or the CFR, is the American branch of a society which originated in England and believes that national boundaries should be obliterated and one world rule established. Next, I want to share with you a quote from John Rarick in 1971, who was a Democratic congressman from Louisiana. The Council on Foreign Relations is the establishment. Not only does it have influence and power in key decision-making positions at the highest levels of government to apply pressure from above, but it also announces and uses individuals and groups to bring pressure from below to justify the high-level decisions by converting the U.S. from a sovereign constitutional republic into a servile member state of a one-world dictatorship. Next, I'm going to share with you a quote from the 1975 book, Kissinger on the Couch. And this quote comes from Admiral Chester Ward, where he says, The main purpose of the Council on Foreign Relations is promoting the disarmament of U.S. sovereignty and national independence and submergence into an all-powerful one-world government. So now I'd like to share with you another quote from Admiral Chester Ward from Review of the News, April the 9th, 1980, page 37, where he says, The most powerful cliques in these elitist groups, referring to the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, which we will cover next in this teaching, and others, have one objective, and that is to bring about the surrender of the sovereignty and independence of the United States of America. A second clique of international members in the Council on Foreign Relations comprises the Wall Street international bankers and their key agents. Primarily, they want the world banking monopoly from whatever power ends up in the control of global government. They would probably prefer that this be an all-powerful United Nations organization, but they are also prepared to deal with and for a one-world government controlled by communist entities if U.S. sovereignty is ever surrendered to them. So next, we're going to share with you regarding the Trilateral Commission organization. The Trilateral Commission was founded by David Rockefeller in July 1973 to foster closer cooperation between North America, Western Europe, and Japan in the areas of politics and economics. Trilateral means three-sided. Today, there is a North American group, a European group, and a Pacific Asian group. Founding members included Zebanu Brzezinski, who became President Carter's National Security Advisor, George Franklin, Executive Director of the Council on Foreign Relations, Paul Volcker, and Alan Greenspan, both who later became heads of the Federal Reserve. 
Their first executive committee meeting took place in Tokyo in October 1973. Today, the Trilateral Commission has over 400 members. Membership is by invitation only. U.S. President Jimmy Carter was one of the nearly 60 founding members of the Trilateral Commission in 1973. At that time, Carter was the only Democratic governor chosen to be a founding member. In the late 1970s, many former Trilateral Commission members held senior positions in the cabinet of U.S. President Jimmy Carter. They included the positions of Secretary of State, Defense, and Treasury. On top of that, Carter placed over 25 other Trilateral members, that was over one-third of its U.S. members at the time, to senior administrative positions. Members over the years included Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale, George Bush Sr., Dick Cheney, Bill Clinton, and Al Gore. Next, I'm going to share with you a quote from Zibinu Brzezinski from his 1970 book, Between Two Ages. Remember, Brzezinski was a founding member of the Trilateral Commission, where he writes in his book, The nation-state, as a fundamental unit of man's organized life, has ceased to be the principal creative force. International banks and multinational corporations are acting and planning in terms that are far in advance of the political concepts of the nation-state. This regionalization is in keeping with the trilateral plan which calls for a gradual convergence of East and West, ultimately leading toward the goal of one world government. National sovereignty is no longer a viable concept. Next, I'd like to share with you another quote by Zibinu Brzezinski regarding world government, where he said, We cannot leap into world government through one quick step. The precondition for eventual and genuine globalization is progressive regionalization because by that we move toward larger, more stable, more cooperative units. And now, another quote from Zibinu Brzezinski from his 1970 book, Between Two Ages, where he says, Calling for a forging of communism with the West, Brzezinski said the ultimate goal is world government. Next, I'd like to share with you a quote from Congressman Larry McDonald in 1976, where he stated that the Rockefeller organizations want one world government. He says, The drive of the Rockefellers and their allies is to create a one world government combining supercapitalism and communism under the same tent, all under their control. Do I mean conspiracy? Yes, I do. I am convinced there is such a plot. International in scope, generations old in planning, and incredibly evil in intent. Next, I'd like to share with you a quote from Senator Barry Goldwater from his 1979 book, With No Apologies, where he states, David Rockefeller's newest international cabal, referring to the Trilateral Commission, is intended to be the vehicle for multinational consolidation of the commercial and banking interests by seizing control of the political government of the United States. The Trilateral Commission represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, political, monetary, intellectual, and ecclesiastical. Continuing from quoting from Senator Barry Goldwater from his 1979 book, With No Apologies, he continues on saying, all this is to be done in the interest of creating a more peaceful, more productive world community. What the trilateralists truly intend is the creation of a worldwide economic power superior to the political governments of the nation-states involved. They believe the abundant materialism they propose to create will overwhelm existing differences. As managers and creators of the system, they will rule the future. 
Next, I'd like to share with you some quotes from the 1980 book by Holly Schlar entitled Trilateralism, where she says, Trilateralism is the creed of an international ruling class whose locus of power is the global corporation. The owners and managers of global corporations view the entire world as their factory, farm, supermarket, and playground. The Trilateral Commission is seeking to strengthen and rationalize the world economy in their interest. Trilateralists look forward to a pseudo-post-national age in which social, economic, and political values originating in the trilateral regions are transformed into universal values. Expanding networks of like-minded governmental officials, businessmen, and technocrats, elite products of Western civilization, are to carry out national and international policy formation. Functionally, specific institutions with more technical focus and lesser public awareness are best suited for addressing international issues in the trilateral model. Trilateralists call this decision-making process piecemeal functionalism. No comprehensive blueprints would be proposed and debated, but bit and bit the overall trilateral design would take shape. Its functional components are to be adopted in more or less piecemeal fashion, lessening the chance that people will grasp the overall scheme and organize resistance. So next I'm going to share with you a 1922 quote from New York City Mayor John Highland regarding the banker's control of the U.S. government. He said, The real menace of our republic is this invisible government which, like a giant octopus, sprawls its slimy length over city, state, and nation. Like the octopus of real life, it operates under cover of a self-created screen. At the head of this octopus are the Rockefeller Standard Oil interests and a small group of powerful banking houses generally referred to as international bankers. This group of powerful international bankers virtually run the United States government for their own selfish purposes. They practically control both political parties. Next, I'd like to share with you another quote by Lewis McFadden regarding the bankers controlling U.S. government. In one note regarding Congressman Lewis McFadden is he survived two assassination attempts, but he died on October the 1st, 1936 at the age of 60 under suspicious circumstances. So he said, Every effort has been made by the Federal Reserve to conceal its powers, but the truth is the Fed has usurped the government. It controls everything here in Congress and controls all foreign relations. It makes and breaks governments at will. And now a quote from U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt regarding the banker's control of U.S. government, where he said in 1933, The truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that a financial element in the large centers has owned the government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson. So we've shared with you regarding the Bilderberg Group, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Trilateral Commission. And now we're going to share with you regarding how the United Nations came into being and the goal that the founders had for the United Nations. The earliest concrete plan for a new world organization to replace the League of Nations, which was tried to be set up after World War I but was unsuccessful, began with the support of the U.S. State Department in 1939. The text of the Declaration of the United Nations was drafted by U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and Roosevelt aide Harry Hopkins while meeting at the White House on December the 29th, 1941. During these meetings, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt was the chief promoter 
Well, that's going to conclude part 11 of the series on the subject, Exposing the Kingdom of Darkness. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Thank you, Eddie. This is Stephen Morgan, and all of us here at Hebraic Heritage Ministries pray that you have enjoyed today's teaching. If you've been blessed, will you help us to share this message with others? Hebraic Heritage Ministries is supported by your generous financial gifts. In order to help you in your studies and to help us share this message with others, we are offering today the DVD, Yeshua the Lawgiver, for free for a love gift of any amount to the ministry. Hebraic Heritage Ministries also offers a monthly discipleship program. If you are interested in starting a fellowship group in your area, let us know. We would like to help you. Please contact us for more details. Our website is hebroots.org. That's H-E-B-R-O-O-T-S dot O-R-G. We would like to hear from you. Please send us an email. Finally, in order to take advantage of today's free offer, please mention this product offer and... Please mail your love gift to Hebraic Heritage Ministries, P.O. Box 81, Strasburg, that's S-T-R-A-S-B-U-R-G, Ohio, 44680. Until next time, may Yeshua richly bless you.